Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight, it is June 20th of 2013, and this evening, our guest is Ashley E. Phillips, who is the president of Recovery Coaches International. She is the smart coordinator for the state of California and many, many other things. Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little ad here for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. And our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest, Ashley, is with us right now. How are you doing this evening, Ashley? I'm doing great. Really happy to be here, Ken. I'm so sorry I missed you when, when I was in New York recently. Well, we'll get together again next time you come back. We will. So tell me a little bit, of what is the difference between a recovery coach, a substance abuse counselor, a mental health professional, a therapist, where do coaches fit into all this? Oh, great question, Ken. Um, coaching really has come to be accepted as a really powerful strategy for uh, personal change management and self-development across a whole array of uh, arenas, I would say. So um, it, what coaches do is they essentially, we, they, we, meet you where you are and we help you figure out where you want to go, and then we help you figure out not only your map for getting there, but some actual strategies to get where you want to go. And so some people come to a coach uh, further down that path, and other people um, come to us fairly early in that journey. They're not sure where they want to go. They may not even be sure exactly where they are. Um, this, you know, I'm thinking of this phrase, it's better to die on your feet than to live on your knees. Um, we help people figure out what it's like to stand on their own two feet in integrity, um, making healthy choices with good boundaries. And um, we spend most of our time with our clients. Yeah, I would say 90% of our time with our clients in the here and the now, and then also making plans for and um, being held accountable for things that you're putting into place for a healthy future. So unlike a therapist where there may be, or unlike some kinds of therapy, I should say, um, where a lot of time is spent um, on process and on work about the past, we spend about 90% of the time talking about what's going on right now. We help people do reality checks. You know, where's the data? Um, using very much um, REBT and CBT kinds of approaches. Where's the data? You know, how do you know that this is? These are actually the facts. Helping people assess then what they want to do given their current reality, and then helping them figure out some strategies for moving forward. Um, so we meet people um, and bring with us a um, a real expectation or a real, um, we see people as whole, complete, complex human beings who bring both strengths and vulnerabilities with them. We know that they bring resources with them, although they may not realize how many resources they have. We're able to help them identify what those are. And then we also can help bring some additional resources to the table, um, depending on what kind of work they want to do. I like to talk about having courageous conversations with our clients. We, you know, you asked me how are we different, I think, than a sponsor or um, or a, a therapist. We really are coming from an integrated approach, a strengths-based approach, and a partnership um, with the client. Um, I'm not sure if that helps. Oh yeah, that helps a lot. I, but I'm going to go. I'm going to drill down to get some more details too. Um, do you uh, do you work solely with the substance abuse of the client since you're a recovery coach, or what if the client says I have issues with depression, anxiety, social phobia? Do you send them to a therapist, or do you work with them on those issues? Well, you know, it really depends. Um, professional recovery coaches are trained as life coaches. So we have a really strong overview on what's going on with people. We have um, 
a certain level of training on co-occurring disorders like anxiety, depression, and other psychological challenges, emotional, psychological and emotional challenges that people may face. And I think we, you know, good coaches have a really good sense of what healthy boundaries are. It is not at all unusual for me to suggest that a client, to suggest, to invite, and sometimes to require that a client go seek a um, consultation with a therapist or a medication consult with a psychiatrist or um, their family doc. And it is also not unusual for me to work as part of a therapeutic team. Um, I, I will work with a case manager or with a therapist, each of us taking responsibility um, for our particular role in helping support the client. Um, but I guess I would say that generally speaking, coaching is um, a little bit more focused. It's strategic. It's shorter term. Um, people come to us with a certain mindset um, because there's not as much stigma associated with coming to a coach. You know, Tiger Woods has, what, eight coaches <laughs> for all the different areas of uh, of his involvement in life, you know, from financial coaches to golfing coaches to... Um, attitude coaches, etc. Um, I figure if, if Tiger can have one, then a regular, us regular folks can each have at least one. Mm-hmm. If he can have eight, we can have at least one. Um, but people, so I think also we are able to help people leverage their resources. Um, I work very frequently with people who are right out of treatment for substance abuse, for people who find themselves in treatment, and as they're transitioning out into their real lives. They've spent a lot of money, they've spent a lot of time, and they've spent a lot of energy, you know, in that 28- to 90-day program that they're coming out of. And they want to leverage that, those, that time, those resources, and that energy in those first 180 days back into their real life so that they really build on the strengths and the insights that they've developed. You know, the research on um, relapse after treatment is staggering. I mean, some, some studies suggest that it's, up there in the 90 percentile. So um, so we're able to, you know, help clients in those vulnerable times. And um, we really help them with establishing connection. They connect with us in partnership, and we help them connect with others and with resources in the rest of their lives. The other thing is because we're coaches, we are um, available to have an extra phone call or to text with a client outside of, there are regularly scheduled appointments. Um, so we have a little bit more wiggle room to interact with our client and to offer them uh, support. And I, I really like that. I really like the work that I do. Okay. You brought up an interesting point, which is a relapse after treatment, which is quite common, um, as you mentioned and how do you deal with this? Do you teach people about harm reduction techniques so that their relapses aren't so bad? Do you follow any of Alan Marlatt's relapse prevention uh, approaches? Yeah, I actually, in my practice, I talked about so much about relapse prevention as I talked about recovery protection. So we try to put um, systems and planning into place so that if someone finds that they're starting to get into a mode where their um, their life in recovery is not taking priority or they're realizing they're giving themselves permission to start to drink or to use, um, that there are some systems for reaching out. And then we also um, talk about what to do if you just stuck your sort of big toe back in that pond of drinking or using, for example, how to stop it at the big toe and not go in all the way into the deep end. So in my personal experience, for example, because we are um, not approaching clients from a point of view of shame and because we talk about these things um, in advance, you know, as we're starting to work with clients, um, we're able to anticipate problematic situations, help people identify them, come up with a plan, come up with a backup plan, come up with a backup plan for the backup plan, (laughs) and also come up with a plan for what happens when something completely hits you out of it clear blue sky. You know, what comes up when you're hit with something 100% unexpected? Let's come up with a plan for that situation as well. Um, And 
in so doing, one of the ways that I approach this with clients is I and we do, and we do we talk about harm reduction absolutely, and um, not what some coaches also will work with people. I do, for example, who don't have abstinence as a goal, but rather they realize that they have a problem with drugs or alcohol, and they want to move into a more healthy relationship with those substances that doesn't that don't necessarily include abstinence. Typically, abstinence will be a part of that um, renegotiation of that relationship, um, at least at, you know for the first thirty to sixty, um, sometimes as long as a year or two. Mm-hmm. Um, but people are—I've I've seen people really successfully move into a situation where they change their unhealthy relationship with the substance and are able to make healthy decisions about drinking or using in safer situations. And where they build in a sense of accountability in case so that they're not lying to themselves about the reality of the situation. Mm-hmm. Well, we do see cases, at least I see cases, I assume you do too, fairly often where people kick a, a hard drug like uh, heroin or crack, but uh, they, they still want to drink moderately or sometimes smoke a little cannabis or maybe some medical marijuana. And... Uh, Quite a number of people are successful at this. Well, that's actually been my experience. And so I I think what's key here, though, is that um, a good professional coach will allow that conversation to emerge and will ask powerful questions of the client so that they're coming from a place of honesty and they're very clear about their goals. Mm-hmm. So before you, before you know deciding to use a drink or a drug, they'll ask themselves you know they'll ask themselves is there a risk? Is this in keeping with my values? Is this in keeping with the goals for this particular situation? So they can give themselves permission both to use a substance in moderation or to say no thanks I'm I'm really good. Well, we so do communication know. strategies are are really quite an effective piece or quite a, an important piece of that. Mm-hmm. Well, we do know not everyone is successful with this. Um, there are quite a number of people also that will kick heroin and then uh, try to use alcohol to get as drunk as possible to replace the effect, and that's not that's going to lead to an alcohol problem fairly quickly. Right. And some people, when when they do drink again, uh, they get tempted to use heroin when they're intoxicated, and that's another uh, it's another problem that people have to be careful of. So certainly, there's a considerable number of people that do have difficulty uh, with moderate drinking after kicking a hard narcotic, but there are many others that are successful with it. Exactly. So I mean, I think you know what we try to do is meet people, well, I've said this before, you know, we're actually looking at each individual situation and helping the person assess their own situation and help them make really good, healthy decisions about how to go forward. You know, one way that I talk about this, and I I may have learned to talk about it this way, about smart recovery, is um, if someone has a slip, which might be defined as, you know, a very brief return to the old behavior, I talk about it with my clients as um, as a detour. So, for example, if you were I'm, I used I was in New York, but now I'm in the San Diego area in California. If you were driving from San Diego to San Francisco, and you got one exit off of your route on the Highway Five North, that would be akin to a slip, right? You get mm-hmm. off one exit, you immediately realize that you're a little bit off course. You maybe pull over to the side of the road, you take a deep breath, maybe you check your gas tank, maybe you check your GPS, and then you get right back on the freeway and you continue going in the direction of San Francisco. You don't drive all the way back to San Diego in order to start your trip again, right? Mm-hmm. You reassess, you reassess where, you, where you are and then you proceed forward. And that's really how coaches help um, clients deal with all kinds of situations. We help them, you know, if, 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 it, if something's gotten in the way, if they're encountering an obstacle or an unexpected barrier to getting their goal, we'll figure out what it is and how to deal with it in a way that honors who they are and what their lives look like. 
So as a reco- as a as a life coach with specialized training in recovery, you know, when people come to us because they're dealing with trying to stop an unhealthy relationship with a substance, only a little piece of our time is felt is spent on the substance piece. Really, the majority of the time is spent on the what do you want to do with your life piece. Mm-hmm. You know, how how are things going with your work? How are things, you know, from working with a student? Um, how are things going at school? How are things going in your relationships? How are things going with your family? Um, what do your finances look like? How are you how are you building fun into your life? What plans do you have for the future? And what are you what are you putting into place so that you'll be able to realize your golden goals and your, you know, your big vision? What are you doing every day that's helping you, you know, achieve a sense of calm and content and happiness? Right? Those things that you do and that you build in every day are arguably way more important than the big things that you save up for, you know, over a long period of time. Those things are all hugely important. Um, and, you know, it's one of the things with the more traditional treatment, you know, if you're in the, if you're in an AA meeting and you start talking about certain things, all of a sudden you get hit with, that's an outside issue. Don't talk about that. And I think, you know, the outside issues are, ex- they have an extreme impact on your mental health and your chemical health, things like your finances, your job, your sex life, your relationships, your social life, they're all huge, have a huge impact. It's, you know, Ken, that's exactly right. And that's another thing that I should say about um, coaches is that while we may personally come, not first of all, not all of us are in recovery, but for those of us who are, um, we don't bring a particular allegiance or alliance to one to any one um, recovery path or journey. So even if a coach themselves came from out of a 12-step tradition, because they are a professional coach, they're trained in understanding the strength of smart recovery or of women for sobriety. You know, there are a number of different um, approaches including an individual customized approach that the client builds for them builds for themselves creates for themselves so um if pieces of 12 step or pieces of smart or pieces of wss aren't working for a client we can just help them figure out what is working i mean i think we, we spend a lot of time in the solution and not so much time in the problem mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. That's, that's really what it's about Okay, I don't know if you've uh, if you've had a chance to see our book yet or not, the Hams book. You know what? I don't have it in front of me, but I guess I have seen it. Oh, you do have a copy. Then you know that we very much in our approach are, uh, you know, we're like the Chinese menu. Take one from column A, one from column B. Uh-huh. You know, build your own program. Here's the various puzzle pieces that you have. You can take the ones that fit for you and put together your own program that's that's how we've always been from the start yeah so your program is that's one of the reasons i was so happy to be invited to be on this um show with you is because our approaches are very very um compatible um you know let's take a moment and think when did when do people feel an urge or a thought to drink or to to drug under what circumstances? It's when something goes wrong in relationship. It's when there's a financial challenge. It's when your boss says something um, rude or shaming to you. Mm-hmm. It's where you feel like you're not good enough. It's all of those pieces of our lives when, when those things show up and we feel like we can't handle it or having feelings that are uncomfortable or painful, that's when typically we would we would knee-jerk respond with drinking or drugging. So what we as a coach, what we as coaches will do is um, is help people figure out how can I deal with this situation without resorting to that knee-jerk reaction, without avoiding a rush to use and to numb, or how could I actually sort of manage these feelings in a way that would allow me to not feel them so strongly right now, but without resorting to drinking or drugging. And so all of those resources and strategies and, um, you know, we, we, we have 
you know, in my in my practice, we have a whole toolbox of things that we can offer to clients depending on what challenge they're bringing to the session. Mm-hmm. I want to return just for a minute to uh, talk about relapse after treatment because there's things in my mind about this. And uh, it, it is fairly common. And a lot of treatments, they, they seem very afraid to talk about relapse. It's like it's a taboo topic in a lot of uh, the traditional standard treatments. But I think it's very problematic because Okay, what's on my mind? I'm thinking about uh, overdose, and uh, there's a lot of people that will have an opiate overdose after treatment and or after incarceration because, of course, your tolerance is down so much. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's one thing I do at my other job at Lower East Side Harm Reduction Center, or one thing that our, our center does is we go to uh, the correctional agencies like Rikers Island, and we teach the inmates about overdose prevention and Narcan and tell them they can get a Narcan kit from us after they're released. And we tell them their tolerance is down. And if you use the same way you did, you know, before you were incarcerated, uh, you're probably going to die. <laughs> so Yeah, you know, here, here in Southern California, we're actually starting to see much more um, use of the Narcan kits in, with families. I mean, families mm-hmm. are starting to get trained, and especially with high school students and with more and more kids going, you know, people, well, certainly in under 18 and even up to age 30 are finding themselves in treatment or in trouble. Um, parents are starting to get educated about this, and I've seen more and more parents starting support groups and discussion groups and then actually um, making sure that they have access to those um, specific resources so that they are prepared in case there's an emergency. You know, it's interesting what you just said, though, about not talking about it in treatment. Um, I've actually seen something different. I've seen in, I've seen in um, treatment that people will say, you know, they'll point to a room of, say, 30 people, and they'll, they'll basically say 29 of you are going to, are not, are not going to get this. Mm-hmm. I've seen that, too. And so it's almost like a setup for... Um, it's almost like a setup for failure. Now, you know, that's one way of looking at it. Another way to look at it is the way that Ann Fletcher looks at these questions. What is it that people who have been able to maintain successful long-term recovery and who do that not in a way where they're white-knuckling their lives, but in a way that they're living wholehearted lives, to quote Brene um, Brown, what do those people have in common? Well, common is very clear, right? They have they they've been able to get in touch with their passions, their they they've got healthy relationships, um, you know, their finances are in control, they they typically take time for themselves, they actually think about um, you know, effective and appropriate nutrition and hydrating adequately. You know, a lot of them, um, according to her Sober for Good book, not the new book, Inside Rehab, you know, they're they're working on their family relationships, they're having great sex, um, and they live a life also where they're grateful for all of the things they do have, while they're also reaching for things that they um, want to include in a wholehearted life. So I think as coaches, one of the things we do is really help people get a sense of what that is for them and then help them figure out how to build that for themselves. Well, Stanton Peel has talked about that, too, in his books, and uh, I think there's quite a bit of research to back that up, that the more resources you have intact, the better your chance of recovery. The more you lose, the the more you hit bottom. If you lose your job, your family, your home, um, it's very difficult then to overcome an addiction because you don't have those resources available to you. Right. And um, although, you know, I, I um, maybe this is optimistic, Ashley Phillips talking, you know, I, I always think that there's room for hope. And one of the reasons I'm so proud to be the president of RCI, Recovery Coaching International, is that um, we represent both professional coaches and this whole new realm of peer coaches who are people who are out there in the community um, often working as volunteers or for um, relatively low um, hourly wages who are coming from their own experience who have taken um, a short-term course in coaching. 
so that they know that they need to step out of, that they're expected to step out of their own recovery tradition. And they're able to help people, you know, out there in communities, um, in aftercare programs, and on the streets. And they're doing really, really important work. And um, so this whole field of coaching, both at the peer level and at the professional level, is gaining traction. I like to think of it as um, the missing link in this whole field of recovery. And I think it's starting to show up that way. mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I do feel that there is hope for everyone, even people who have lost all their resources. Uh, one of the things that we've seen that is just so interesting is when we look at the wet housing project in Seattle, which is being studied very carefully at the University mm-hmm. of Seattle, and we see when the people are housed, their drinking decreases quite significantly. And, you know, I was talking to Susan Collins, who's one of the researchers recently, and she was saying, you know, one of the people I was talking to said, you know, I like to go to the library and get books. If I stay up all night drinking, I can't go to the library. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. And, and, you know, you said people, even people have lost all of their resources, but, you know, people may have lost all of their um, sort of social, you know, they may have lost social capital. They may have lost physical objects, but they still have their own personal capital. Mm-hmm. And what you know that that's a lot of what we do is we we look at people and we think, what strengths do they have? You know how resilient have they been? You know they're still alive, they've still got um you know they're still whole people yes they're they're in trouble, but what are they bringing to the table, and we really look to identify those strengths and to reflect those back to someone who's in a place of hopelessness and let them know, we'll hold your hope for you until you reclaim it for yourself. We'll be right there for you, reflecting it back to you. Didn't you have Beverly Buncher on recently? She was being, talking about being a loving mirror. There's oh, yeah, a lot she... of different ways, right, that we can choose to be a loving mirror mm-hmm, for people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, families can do that and coaches can do that by mirroring back to the client all of the strengths that they actually are bringing to the table, but that they may have lost sight of because they can't see clearly. Um, you know, they're not used to it. And the other piece that, that I think is so important, then is this whole language piece, you know, helping people reframe their language. Um, all the evidence seems to point to the fact that our brains are wired for language. And when we can help people make intentional choices about their vocabulary, when we can have them or invite them to and model for them, talking about their struggle with alcohol or drugs out there with their addiction as something that's historically been the case, and, you know, no longer talk about themselves in the present tense, but talk about that as something that was in their past, and allow them to start redefining and reframing who they are now and who they're growing into over time. And the more that they stay clear-headed um, and really give themselves the grace of time, they're able to then start integrating repetitive habits that are healthy as they're saying goodbye and sometimes even grieving for the old habits that were sort of like good friends who uh, weren't showing up in such good ways anymore. They may be familiar, but they're uh, they're not so healthy. Okay. I just wanted to mention Beverly Buncher was on the show about a month ago, so there's uh, an archived uh, recording everyone can go listen to if they're interested. Um, since we're talking about this um people people's resources and you know the one of the old fashioned traditional ways that treatment would work would be to take someone off the street put them in treatment for 28 days and turn them right back out on the street where they were and you know if that's where you were using heroin on the street or being an alcoholic on the street it was really not it was not terribly helpful um and it seems to me that an investment in social solutions which would try to get people housed, get them involved in relationships with other people, uh, possibly pursue a career, a job, or even something volunteer. Um, this is actually the way to go to actually help people and not just you know, say, we're going to treat you and put you right back on the street where you were before. 
And, you know, I agree with you, Ken, and don't you see, I'm seeing that this is a trend as well. You know, I'm seeing coaching as a trend. I'm also seeing sort of whole person integrated long-term care, for, mm-hmm. especially for people who have um, really lost a sense of themselves and, and who don't have that many resources. I know here in San Diego, for example, um, there are a number of programs that help um, people who are coming out of, you know, closed facilities to get integrated back into life, to get mentors in the workplace. Um, they're getting coaches to help them and just learn how to, you know, make day-to-day decisions, how to work on a budget, how to um, build a resume, how to go to the library, how to get a library card, how to get a, um, you know, when someone has a job, helping them rebuild their credit and getting a, a secured credit card or a secured loan. You know, one I'm reminded of this expression, how do you eat an elephant? One yeah. bite at a time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's, so, it's, so, um, it's so common for people in early recovery to, you know, they become more clear-headed and they may feel really, really good for a few weeks because they just feel so much better. But one of the ways that I've seen people start to think about relapse or start to give themselves permission to use or to drink is when they have that sense of overwhelm. You know, there's so much to do. There's so much to clean up. Or there's so many, you know, they're overwhelmed with feelings of shame. Did I really make these mistakes? So helping people come to a place where they realize they may have made a mistake, but they're not a mistake helping them come to a place where they realize that they can embrace hope and that if they can just do one little thing every day, maybe the next day, one additional thing, and then, you know, over time, do two things, and that that's enough, and that they get acknowledgement for doing those small steps, taking those small bites, and they're able to slowly but fairly consistently see positive results from that, then they start to really gain traction as their momentum, you know, moves them forward. It's it's a very nice thing to see. I I have the client I've been working with for just about nine weeks, and this client has gone from you know pretty serious uh, challenges to. Um, basically having, you know, 90% of control over um, her choices and um, it's just feeling, it's just feeling full, full of hope and joy and um, she's doing great. And that's in nine weeks of basically once a week coaching with um, text and phone and a little bit of, I also um, offered her a sober companion to help out with some things. But, I mean, just really significant progress in less than two months, or just about two months. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we are seeing a sea change in rehabs. Um, my my experience, my feeling now from, uh, you know, my contact with so many people, is like 10 to 20% of rehabs are now incorporating evidence-based treatment ideas and uh, social solutions and all the various things we've been talking about to some degree or another, you know, 10 years ago, you wouldn't find that in 1% of rehabs. So definitely I see changes taking place. Yeah. um, I I see those changes. I also feel sometimes like it's going very slowly. Oh, very Um, slowly. About 80% are still back there in the dark ages. Yeah. Um, well, you know, you, if you think about most of these treatment centers have a completely different business model that um, is largely 12-step oriented, and, um, and it, you know, that changes. I mean, we know this, you know, it's hard to stop biting your nails. Well, imagine if you've got a whole business based on a business model and a treatment philosophy that now is being questioned um, in the research so it's going to take time for them to for for these places to move out of it. But I, I have to tell you, I um, am working with one treatment center uh, here in Southern California, who was virtually 100% 12 step um, about 120 days ago. They had someone present in treatment who was familiar with SMART and who wanted support in pursuing a SMART recovery um, journey. And uh, 
at first request, this, this treatment center basically said, well, no, we're not offering that. You get what we offer. And because people, um, because this person knew to reach out on the smart message board and say, you know, can someone help me out? Um, someone else saw it on the message board of smartrecovery.org and said, I think that's Ashley Phillips' territory. They reached out to me. I called the center, talked to their clinical director. I, 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 she, she was a little bit hesitant, but when I talked to her about the fact that, you know, we all like recovery, just like most people like ice cream. Mm-hmm. So not everybody likes chocolate ice cream. Some people prefer vanilla. Some, some prefer strawberry. And some people like tutti frutti. So when I was able to let her know that I wasn't challenging their 12-step tradition, but rather I was asking them to just take a peek at something else and to honor this client who was already there, um, they were able to um, really invite me in in open arms. And now they are not only offering a smart meeting there every week, but they are taking all of the people who want to go to a smart meeting to an external meeting off campus. So they've now incorporated two smart meetings and some of their staff are in the process of being trained in the more, um, in this perspective. And a number of the people that I've met there are um, people, participants or uh, patients, I guess, there who are deciding to use both smart and traditional 12-step perspective or some other, you know, more, more customized journey. And so it's really been, it's been very rewarding to participate in that change um, and I think part of that may be, you know, sort of coming in and not being in their faces and allowing them a chance to get to know, um, to get to know that there are different programs and it's not about them being wrong. It's just about there being more than one way of being right. Well, I really and like... sort of more of an expansive, expansive perspective. Mm-hmm. I really like a lot of things in the smart recovery, and as I've often said, I stole all kinds of things from smart recovery for the ham time <laughs> reduction program, and that's because I only steal from the best. Oh, I love that. Hey, imitation is the greatest form of flattery, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But there's all kinds of stuff in smart that you can use, um, you know, even if your goal is to abstain one day and, you know, you, you have a plan where, well, I'm going to drink three days a week, abstain four days a week, um, you know, those abstinence-based strategies from SMART, you can adopt all kinds of them for the days you're choosing to abstain. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. You no, know, SMART is an abstinence-based program, but, the you know, one of the tenets of SMART is discover the power of your own choice. Right? discover the power of your ability to make um, choices about your own life. And so people can take the SMART um, perspective and use it however they'd like to. I mean, I've um, worked with clients who um, I introduced to William um, Miller's work, you know, Controlling mm-hmm, Your Drinking, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and um, that use, they use that in combination with SMART. Um, and, you know, I know I, I've talked with people who are using traditional 12-step work. They love the 12-step fellowship. Um, you know, I think sometimes people tend to talk about a 12-step perspective as if every AA meeting or NA meeting is the same, and they're simply not. You know, there are, there are pockets and um, places in the 12-step tradition that are more flexible, and there are places where where it isn't. And so, again, within even within that tradition, there is room for a lot of people to find recovery and to find the kind of support that they're looking for. Well, I always support anyone in following the path that works for them. You know, I often say my mentor that taught me needle exchange, which is where I learned everything about harm reduction, was a member of a 12-step program. You know, I didn't even find that out until years later (laughs) because, you know, when you're doing harm reduction, you don't proselytize for abstinence or 12 steps. But, you know, that's so I totally respect people's right to choose that path. And, you know, at the same time, I have to say every word of AA's big book violates my religious beliefs to the core. So they just, it's, it's never going to be compatible with me in any way at all. But, you know, to each their own. Right. Well, and, and I guess that's another piece of recovery coaching that's really important. Is that you know we we people who come to us we think that no matter who you are and no matter what spiritual or or lack thereof belief set 
you have, you have a right to get sober if that's what you want to do. So you're welcome to you're welcome to call us. Um, you have every right to do that. I mean, I've actually worked with deeply religious people who, because of their deep faith, don't feel so comfortable in the mm-hmm, rooms mm-hmm. of um, of AA. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Um, I know those people too. They're not comfortable too. being being told that they need to make a, a spiritual connection. That that piece of their lives is really in place. What they need help with is figuring out how to stop drinking or drugging. So, you know, there's lots of ways to come at this. And I think you and I are both saying the same thing, that, um, do, you know, you do, what to, do what works for you. Um, certainly one of, the, one of the strengths of coaching um, is that not everybody feels comfortable in a group meeting, right? Not mm-hmm, everybody mm-hmm. feels safe in that, in that such situation. Some people really need some personal, um, individual time. And um, sometimes they need that as a way to get into um, a comfort zone to also participate in self-help meetings. For some people, it's just not their bailiwick. So we can be a bridge or we can be a standalone uh, mm-hmm. support, network, support network for people who are seeking recovery. In my practice, I work both with people who, are, um, who come to me because they've got these issues. And I also see clients who are just coming in order to get coaching on general life um, issues or work issues. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, I, I really work with a sort of diverse set of people, but um, having this particular training in this in this whole world of um, of substance abuse and chemical dependency um, has given me a whole new perspective. And um, there's just so much there's so much needed in this in this work, and there's so much God can don't you think there's so much stigma that needs to be taken out of this whole challenge. I mean, if people could just realize that, you know, if they, if they could dare to tell the truth about their experience, you know, virtually every other person on the street would say, really? You know, so you or someone in your family, your brother, your mom, your sister, right? The most powerful words in the English language for some people are hearing someone say, me too. You know, it mm-hmm. just helps take the shame and the stigma out of their experience. And I'm hoping that by engaging in these conversations and by shows like yours, we're going to start um, helping people realize that this, this is not something that needs to be hidden. You know, people don't typically start out um, trying a substance with the goal of getting addicted, right? The, mm-hmm. You know, the story about the frog and the boiling water, right? Mm-hmm. If, you, if you throw a frog into boiling water, the frog is going to jump out because they know that that's a big alley. But if you put a frog in a bowl of water and just slowly raise the temperature over time, the frog is going to boil his ass. And that's how addiction catches up with and gets, you know, people get, people get in trouble over time. They don't mean for it to happen. And, you know, once they get clear-headed, they can really start reclaiming their lives and making healthy decisions. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a, there's a huge stigma, though, attached to drug use itself. I mean... We know that uh, most drug users don't become addicted, even if we look at these these drugs like heroin. Um, uh, you know, most heroin users don't become addicted, but to use heroin, it is to be a heroin user is to be completely stigmatized. Uh, you know, our government is just preaching about how horrible all these people are. If you use heroin, if you smoke. If you use any of these drugs, you're just a monster. That's how our media presents it. That's how our government presents it. I think you know we need a huge change. Uh, We need to legalize substances. We need to recognize people's right to use them, and we need to realize that you know some use is problematic. Uh, Some drugs are more addictive than others. I you know if, if heroin was legalized tomorrow. You know, I hear the conservative politicians say everyone will go out and use it. And I want to say to them, well, would you go out and use it? Because I sure as hell wouldn't go out and use it. I have no desire to use it if it's legalized tomorrow. It doesn't interest me. I've seen too many people run into too many problems with it. Yeah, you know, this um, RCI doesn't um, take a position on the the whole legalization question, so I can't really speak to that. but what I can say is that, you know, in general, we really have, I think, developed into a society where people are um, more inclined to 
look for an external source for calming themselves or for helping soothe them and than they are to look at their own internal resources for calming and soothing and uh, or perhaps looking to their their internet connections right to figure out how to do how to get themselves calmed and soothed and and what i'm seeing in this field is um is people are starting to give themselves permission to talk about why is it that we want to feel different you know can we choose to have a, a bit of discomfort and then use that as a as a an opportunity to learn something about ourselves or to stretch or to learn to let go instead of thinking that we have to change the way that we feel immediately. Can we take a moment, press our personal pause button and consider what's going on? You know, maybe we need to change our job. You know, instead of going out for drinks every happy hour, maybe we need to find another job that's more meaningful that is more in keeping with our our strengths and our passions. You know, I think just giving ourselves permission to take a moment and to look at what our options are and to look at what our bodies are telling us is one of the greatest gifts that um, people can give themselves. Figuring out what works best and what you want your personal journey to be and what you want your legacy to be. And go ahead and build it for yourself. Well, I think that is, you know, that's what healthy people do. Healthy people can deal with being uncomfortable. Um, it's often because people have trauma or something else uh, in their life that uh, they turn to using drugs to self-soothe. Um, and they have a much more difficult time to, you know, deal with things that are uncomfortable in a healthy manner. Right. And so with, that's exactly right. And so with a coach, people are able to get comfortable learning how to sit with some discomfort, knowing that they're safe, knowing that they're not going to be attacked, knowing that they can be honest about what they're going through. And obviously people do this in a therapeutic environment as well. And um, they can learn to chip away at their issues and start practicing some strategies for self-soothing and for managing um, all of these kinds of um, emotional and other upsetting situations. And over time, with repetition, lots of repetition and redundancy, over time, people can start incorporating these new ways so that they start defaulting, you know, they start knee-jerking to the healthy alternative, not to the drinking or drugging. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I do just want, before we leave, to go back to the question of stigma for just a little bit, because it's it's often struck me, you know, at the turn of the century, uh, from at around the year 1900, that turn of that century, um, you know, you could uh, pretty much take all the opiates you wanted and not be terribly stigmatized. No one was thrown in jail. There were no laws against opiates. Um and you know, no one was really treated as mentally ill. That there were problems associated with it, of course, and there were overdoses and various problems that you know still exist today. But you know, there was not stigma attached. But at that same period in time, if we look at how homosexuals were treated, they were treated as criminals and put in prison. Or some years later, they were treated as mentally ill and needing treatment because they had a disease. You know, there's, homosexual homosexuality was horribly stigmatized although drug use was not, then it seems like we've switched. It seems like we always need to have somebody to be the scapegoat to hate. And now it seems like um, we've accepted homosexuality as this is, a, this is a person's choice or a person's right to be this way. It's not, it's not a sin. It's not a disease. It's not a crime. And now we've turned around and instead say, oh, drug use, opiate use, that's a disease. That's a sin. That's a crime. And, you know, it seems to me that we really need to stop hating people that use drugs. And that's an essential part of stopping the stigma against people that recover from problematic drug use, too. Yeah, I, well, I agree. You know, I, it's so funny you're mentioning this right now because I 
I went to see the movie 42 last night about Jackie Robinson. And it's just stunning to realize how much actual social change has occurred around racial issues in our, mm-hmm. um, in our world. In you know, it, if you're in it, I think it feels like forever. But um, if you're looking back, you realize that we really did come pretty far. And some people move very, very quickly. Um, in order to in order to make that change happen, and obviously we still have a long way to go on, in all of these arenas. Um, but, but coming to a place where we really do um, relate to ourselves and relate to one another in community, you know, the African expression it takes a village. Mm-hmm. In my experience, you know, a lot of a lot of you know making life work does take a village, and if we can each take responsibility for our part. Um, and to, to act in integrity, if we can also flex around the fact that people make mistakes and that not everybody has the same skill set. So if we can play to people's strengths and um, acknowledge, you know, where, where we need help or we need other resources because they're not our strengths, if we can bring that kind of um, perspective to the table, then we're all going to create a better community, you know, we're going to create better families, we're going to create better communities, we're going to create a better world. You know, again, are we going to dare to tell the truth about our experience? It, it, what would, I wonder what would happen if everyone who had um, someone who had had a drug or alcohol challenge in their own experience or in their families, you know, had a place on one day or in one hour to stand up and say, yeah, that was me. That was my family. How powerful might that be? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I was talking to Joe Schrank a couple of weeks ago when I was in New York, and we were envisioning what would happen if we had an entire, if we had strawberry fields in Central Park, you know, completely filled up with people who said, yeah, that was me. And we're coming here today to say, you know, for, the, for this day, we are going to choose to be here um, in sobriety, making that choice, making th- that choice to come together in community. Just on this day, for this time, we're going to give ourselves permission to do that and say this was something that we had to deal with in our family. This is something I had to deal with myself. It's powerful stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we've been talking for almost an hour, so we're coming to the close. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah, it's been that long. Um, so where can people find you on the web? Well, people can find me at www.ashleyephillips.com, and they can find Recovery Coaches International, um, which is also um, the acronym is RCI. Just Google Recovery Coaches International, and we're actually updating our website as we speak. Um, And I would like to thank you, Ken, for a really interesting discussion and conversation. And if you don't mind, I'd like to share one of my favorite quotes. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, Maya Angelou says, do your best until you know better. And when you know better, do better. And I think that what's going on in the recovery community and certainly what's going on in recovery coaching is we're, we're acknowledging people for what they've already done. We're helping them know better and we're, we're giving them feedback and positive reinforcement when they actually incorporate that new knowledge and do better. So together we can all make a difference. And thank you so much for being a part of the solution. Well, thank you for being a guest on the show this evening. Uh, Everybody, come back next week. I forgot who's scheduled, and I didn't look at the schedule. But we have a guest scheduled for next week, so we'll talk to you all again then. Thank you, everyone, and good night. Good night.